Hey everyone, this is Philip Jackson. I wanted to pause before the lessons in this series to note the significance of infertility and what we're trying to accomplish with these lessons. Um, infertility affects one in four couples in developing countries, and that's about 48 and a half million couples who experience infertility worldwide every year. According to Scientific American Magazine and the World Bank, the worldwide fertility rate has dropped by nearly 1% every year since 1960. Some scientists even believe that it is the greatest threat to the survival of the human race. Given its significance and the amount of people that are being affected by it, I believe that this is a subject that the church can't continue to ignore. Um, this is one of the most significant issues of our day, and we must do everything that we can to understand it biblically. This small series is intended to help couples who are struggling with these issues to understand what God's Word says. Not just about conception and miscarriage, but more importantly, what God has to say to them directly in their relationship with Him as believers. This study is not meant to be a medical resource, but rather a theological lens for us to consider the great gift of children and the different roles that God has given us in His kingdom. In this lesson, we work through the testimony of Hannah, a woman plagued by infertility who brings her honest struggle to God. In the process, God moves in an incredible way as her journey to worship turns into the sacrifice of her heartache. Okay, take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Um, we are, we're in a series of lessons where we're looking at infertility or fertility in the Bible and what God's Word says about this. Um, we have this lesson and one more, and then we'll do some, some uh, specific theology work with the issues around certain fertility practices. So that's coming. Um, something I want you guys to be thinking about is when we're finished with this series, this is the year of the family for us in our Sunday school class, and so um, we are going to take a break from the normal um, instructional type format that we have been doing the last uh, two years. And um, we are going to, so God's word says that it's profitable for everything, right? For instruction and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, First Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. And so um, I think it's going to be important for us as a group to learn how to uh, use those muscles. And so I want you to be praying about real questions. We're going to spend three or four weeks, and we're going to take one question, and we're going we're to dig through God's Word as a group, and we're going to take some serious Bible study and not just say, you know, throwing out verses like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? We're going we're gonna to actually take a question and say, okay, we're going to pray, ask the Lord to help us out, and we're going to use some Bible study tools, and we're going to work through some things together. So be thinking about that in the next probably three or four weeks. We'll get to that. Okay, so in, um, in all the stories that we've looked at so far, the central theme has been the relationship between the individuals and God, right? Infertility typically is a question that people, they think about, uh, just involves um, having a child, and uh, that's kind of the obsession or the, um, the subject of worry. But um, Hannah, we're going to look at Hannah and Elkanah this morning, and um, they stand in contrast to the other people that we've looked at. We've looked at Abraham and Sarai. We've looked at Jacob and Rachel and Leah. Um, and um, the core issue of the story in First uh, Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2 is um, that these stories are, are all of the relationship between each person and God, and they always lead to conflict. What's interesting about uh, sinfulness or the... the the baseline, Rom Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that the baseline of life is basically conflict and a dumpster fire. 
And the natural result of living in a fallen world is that there will be conflict, okay? And, and the closer these personal things get to us, or the more personal they are, the more uh, potential they have to be divisive and, and hurtful. And uh, so we're going to see some of that this morning. So we'll start with the first seven verses. Um, okay, verse one. Now there was a certain man from Rathama, the Ramathame, Zo, Zophram, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram. Uh, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Easy for you to say. Uh, verse 2. And uh, he had two wives. The name of, his, of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of, of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Okay, first thing that we're going to see here is... um, is Hannah's response to this stress, okay? Verse, verse 2 tells us that Hannah has no children. Uh, presumably the way that the text is written, because she's listed first, she is probably Elkanah's first wife. Um, it was common back then in the ancient world that uh, a man would take a second wife if his, if his uh, original wife was infertile. And the reason was is because of children, okay? And there's a couple of reasons why in our context we read that and we think that's Obviously inappropriate, and it's not God's design in Scripture. So why would that be? Um, why would that be seen as okay back then? A side note: by the time you get to the Second Temple period, where Jesus, you know, is alive, and and we have the synagogue system under the Pharisees, uh, polygamy has been completely outlawed in in Israel. So by the time you get to the the New Testament period, it's something that's been dealt with by by the people of Israel. So this is something that is is in the ancient world. Some of the reasons why there were uh, several marriages, uh, one was economic. Um, all family property uh, was passed through the male side of the family. If you did not have a, uh, a male heir, all of your things would be uh, taken by law uh, by someone else. Uh, some other family member would, would seize them to, in order for things to stay in the family. Um, they, would, they would do this to, uh, to have children, not just to produce an heir, but also uh, to protect the family and their livelihood. Um, it would protect them from disease because life expectancy was not as high as it is today. And so more children meant uh, more opportunity for your family to survive. So with a multitude of children came the ability to be able to not just have an heir, but have one that would grow to adulthood and, and continue the family's, not just name. We tend to think of it as, you know, I want a son to pass on the family name. Back then it was, if we don't have a son, we are going to be destitute and die. So it was something that was incredibly important. Um, and the la- and la- the, one of the things that was important was protection. The more children you have meant the bigger your family was, which meant the bigger that your army was, which, big- which meant you were more capable to protect each other. Uh, if you remember the story of Abraham, whenever his nephew Lot gets kidnapped, um, Abraham gathers all of his family together, and he has 300 men that, uh, that can, they're both slaves, servants, and children, that can bear weapons to defend the family. So... Um, that's something we need to think about when, when we're considering this. So Hannah is, is uh, she's loved by her husband. Verses 5 through 7 
talks about this conflict between um, Hannah and Peninnah. And um, some things that are interesting that we need to note here uh, is that Elkanah sees his, sees his wife Hannah and he sees the agony that she's going through by not being able to produce a child. And so he has compassion on her. It's different than, like, for instance, we looked at Abraham and Jacob. When their wives go through difficulty, they seem to be living in their own world. But Elkanah is different because he sees his wife struggling and he does his best to provide her with the ability to, um, to worship and to find comfort in her relationship with the Lord. And so he tries to lead her in that way, but even at that, he doesn't seem to um, help. He just, kind of, he just seems to pour gasoline on the fire because by giving her this double portion, it actually increases the division between her and uh, Peninnah, his other wife. Um, look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Peninnah uh, would taunt her at the feast, and she would highlight the fact that she was barren. So think about it this way. Use your sanctified imagination. Peninnah sees that Hannah gets a double portion, which is meant to be consumed. So they would take this, the animal, they would sacrifice it in an act of worship to the Lord, and then they would eat part of the animal as in a feast. So Hannah gets a double portion, she gets a double serving, two plates of food. She doesn't touch it. And so Peninnah highlights, well, she's got all this food, but she doesn't eat anything. Clearly something's wrong with her. Because back at this time, um, not being able to, to bear a child meant that something was wrong between your relationship with you and God. So Peninnah is aggravating this, this notion that somehow Hannah is lesser because she, not only is she receiving something that makes Peninnah insecure, but she also says that, that Hannah is being, um, she's, she's being inappropriate with what she's been given. And so it, it just kind of exacerbates this thing. And um, so Hannah, she dreads this annual journey to the tabernacle. Um, and for Elkanah, he's, he's trying to ease her sorrow by giving her an extra portion, but it just doesn't seem to be working. He's exacerbating the situation. And um, look at verse 7. Um, verse 7, it says that it happened year to year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, that she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Now, what's interesting is that depression... Uh, typically will manifest itself in a loss of appetite. So you have this, this woman who is not just upset, but she is clinically depressed. She is so upset, she is not hungry at all. The thought of food is just turns her stomach. This is something that we can relate to in our, our generation, that you know, going through the struggle of a deep hurt, a deep stress, um, is something that's very real, and it doesn't just live between our ears. It's something that is absolutely a reality. And so she is listening to her husband's other wife taunt her, and she's thinking about all these things, and it's growing worse and worse in her mind. You can see her just fidgeting, just waiting, just waiting for the feast to be over so she could get out of there. Can we just, I just want to, I just want to leave. I just want to leave. I want to go away. Look at verse 11, or verse 8, sorry. So she runs to the, to the tabernacle to cry out to the Lord. In verse 8, she says, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking at Shiloh, 
Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on, my, on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, I will give him to you, to the Lord, all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come to his head. So Elkanah, he tries to console her. She's ready to get out of there. Um, but he just can't seem to get past his own importance here. You know, it's almost like you can see him struggling to find the words. We men are very simple people, right? And sometimes it's hard for us to find the right thing to say. And so he says that the best thing that, that he can think of, well, aren't I enough for you? I love you so much. Why, why do you have to have all this other stuff? Why can't we just be happy together? And he just, he can't, the poor guy, he just doesn't get it. So he's struggling. But Hannah's issue isn't that she's not loved. It's that she's isolated. Infertility is one of those things for our ladies that is isolating because it strips them of community and her connection with others. She's left behind as her peers move into a new common adventure and she's just continually left behind. She feels stuck as she, she sees the people that she loves. They move away from her. And every new friend that she meets that doesn't have a child, the clock begins to tick in the back of her mind. How long? How long until that friend has a baby and leaves me? You see, Hannah is not just wrapping herself up in this idea of being a mother. She is completely alone. Man. And so she runs to the tabernacle to pray. There are two different kinds of prayer in Scripture. The one is called, one of them is called a prose prayer. This is an unscripted, private um, pouring out of an individual's heart. Uh, this prayer that she prays in this chapter is an example of a prose prayer. Um, this is something that, that someone uh, will speak in response to a specific situation. Um, the second type of prayer is called a common prayer or a prayer that's meant for a community. It's a, it's a written or public prayer for individuals that, that, or for the entire community that, um, that draws people's attention to specific truth. We see this written in the Psalms. We see this written in the Lamentations in Scripture. These types of prayer would be an acknowledgement of God's nature and his, and his character traits. Okay, so if you read the Psalms of David in, his, in the middle of his uh, being hunted in the wilderness while he's running from either his son Absalom or from King Saul, these are lamentations. These are appeals to God. These are reminders of what's true. In every sense, it is, it is living out Philippians chapter 4 where he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the natural result of that is that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. These types of prayers draw us to the throne room of grace. But I want you to notice, verses 9 through 11, we see Hannah's prayer. She runs away from the table and runs straight to the tabernacle. It says that she is greatly distressed. Now, I want you to, to, to see that, that Hannah didn't act dramatically or in a selfish way. She waited until the feast was over. Then she made her way to the tabernacle. She didn't just storm off and roll her eyes and make a grunt and then leave the table, making a big dramatic exit. She very simply waited, got up, and went to Jesus. This is an important piece. 
because there's something different about Hannah than from the other women that we've looked at because she doesn't make her struggle the justification for being divisive or sinful. She comes to God and bears her soul in complete exhaustion. This is not like Rachel. This is not like Sarai. This is not like any of the other women that we've seen so far. Her beef is not with her sister wife. Her beef is not with her husband. Her beef is between her and God, and her heart is broken. I think this is, this is really, really endearing for her because it shows what kind of a person that she is. Even though she is overwhelmed by this weight of what she carries, she still is composed and she goes to God in a way that is not self-serving or amplifying who she is or her struggle or trying to use her, her hardship as a justification to get attention. She simply wants to be with him. Now, there's a difference between lamentation and complaining. Okay, I want to talk about this. Because complaining is a critical and sinful attitude that's driven by fleshly desires and a proud and entitled spirit against God. I read about this just the other day in, uh, in the book of Numbers, where the, the people of Israel, when they're in the wilderness, they get tired of eating manna. And so they start complaining. And I've always read that as, okay, God gives them quail to eat because he wants to give them a you know, diverse palate. But when you read that chapter, you realize that the first thing that God does is send fire out of the Holy of Holies and consume them. And then he turns around and those that ate the quail get a disease and they die. And it specifically says that the people complained. This is the same thing that James tells us in James chapter 4 where he says, why are you praying for things and not getting them? Why is there conflict among your midst? Because you're praying for sinful things to, to consume it on your own lusts. Okay, so there's a difference between complaining and actual lamentation. So lamentation is the faithful appeal to God to intervene in the lives of his people because of the natural weight of the conflict produced by the fallen world. It is a, it's a legitimate grieving of a child of God to come to him and say, Father, I am desperate for help here because I don't know what to do. It is not a complaint. It is, a, it is a, uh, an attempt to try to focus the attention on who God is. Now look at her prayer in verse 11. She starts off by saying, O Lord of hosts. She acknowledges the authority of the God of armies. And then she moves on. She acknowledges that God intently seeks her heartbreak. She requests for God to remember her. This verb means to notice with kindness, granting requests, protecting, delivering. She's appealing for his compassionate nature. Then she moves on after, after praising him, only after praising him for who he is and acknowledging his character does she appeal to him for a male child. Again, she follows the pattern of what we see in Philippians chapter 4. We begin with a petition to ask to be with him. That changes our perspective. And so with thanksgiving, we ask for something. And then she finally submits to the terms of God's provision. She says, if you give him to me, I will give him up to you. Going back to John's point earlier, I'm not just going to give the the crap that's left over in my life. I'm actually going to give the thing that I want the most. Because my purpose is not to have this thing to hold on to it. My purpose is to have this thing to express who you have chosen for me to be. We've been talking about that a lot over these last several weeks, that, that who we are in our identity as a child of God, that we are a member of the royal priesthood, that we are stewards of God's mysteries. As a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife, these are all roles that God has placed in our life to, to express himself to the world through us, right? Because the day will come when I am no longer a husband, the day will come when you are no longer a wife. The day will come when you, are, you could potentially not be a father or a mother. These, anything that, that can be taken from you is not your identity. These are, these are ways that God has chosen to express himself 
to the world. And so she acknowledges that. She says she's going to gladly give up whatever God gives her uh, for, for ministry. Later, um, a man who her son would anoint to be king of Israel would write these words in Psalm 34. It's interesting how they tied together with what she prayed. Psalm 34, 15 through 18 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and, he hears, and his ears are towards the cry, their cry for help. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to eliminate the, the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Purpose of, lim- of lament is to align a person's attention to God. You know, it's important for us as, we, as we're dealing with these things, either directly or indirectly, um, whether it's your family story dealing with infertility or if it, whether it's someone that you love and you care about, it's important to remember the difference between complaining and lamentations. It is okay to feel the weight of pain. But something that is, that is profound that God has been showing me through all of this study, there is a very, uh, very common uh, Facebook meme that's traveling around that says, it's okay to not be okay. You probably have seen that somewhere. It's okay to not be okay. But here's what I would challenge you about that statement. That's not God's perspective. To say that it's okay to not be okay is just to throw your hands up and say, well, it is what it is. But God's perspective is, yes, I know that you're not okay, but I'm not content to leave you there. So it is not okay that you're not okay for God. It's not okay that you're not okay from his perspective, because he is a loving, good father. And he sees the struggle of our affliction. And he wants us to know that he loves us deeply. Look at these next couple of verses, beginning in verse 12. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your... Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Okay, some really important things here. After she had not really been seen by Elkanah, now all of a sudden you got Eli who thinks that she's come from the feast table drunk. That she is uh, a woman that is without any kind of moral conviction. He thinks that she is uh, loose with her mind. She's loose with her actions. And that she's kind of somehow staggered into the tabernacle to, to uh, fake her piety so that she can go home. But this language is, is important because it says that she was praying silently, and that her, but her lips were moving. New American Standard translates this that as her lips were quivering. Um, she was not just silently mouthing words. She was ugly crying in front of God. And she was doing everything that she could to not make a scene. Everything that she could. This is a woman who is absolutely broken. And she is so overwhelmed, you can imagine tears streaming down her face, that she is a hot mess. And she just can't help but just shake under the weight of the, of the challenge that she's, that she's under. And so unlike, 
um, modern heretics who tried to take prayer and, and honest lamentation before God as an opportunity to, to gain attention for themselves and to pray loudly like the Pharisees in the streets. This godly woman, on her knees before the throne, passionately pours out her soul to him. Man, Eli, he's on a totally different planet. He sees her and he accuses her of coming to the tabernacle drunk. Um, that she somehow is, uh, is not who she really is. But lo- notice her resolve. I love this because she says in verse 15, she says, um, I'm a woman of despair, who is despairing in spirit. The original Hebrew can be translated to mean that she is hard in spirit or that she is stiff-necked or determined. She tells him that, that she is not just a casual worshiper. She was doing very serious business with God. She says, you, you dare to come up to me and tell me that I am being casual with my worship? I am in no mood to deal with you, with you right now. Something that you find out later on in the story of, of, of Samuel is that Eli and his sons, Phineas and Hoph, uh, Hophni and Phineas, that they have been taking advantage of the people in the tabernacle. So this guy already has a bad reputation as not necessarily being a godly man, who eventually God kills both of his sons and takes his heritage from him. Hannah... She speaks up for the truth. She doesn't care about any of, the, any of the politics or the drama or anything. She says, I am doing business with God. And so Eli backs up. And in his seriousness, look at, it, look at his response in verse 17. He says, go in peace and may God, the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. In other words, what he's saying, this, this, uh, this phrase means, go in peace. It means you've, you've said your peace before God. You've made up your mind. You've done business before the throne. Clearly, your heart's in the right place. May God give you what you've asked for. His blessing isn't the thing that turns the tide. Something is different about Hannah from this point forward. Because look at the response, how she finishes. In verse 18, she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate. Notice, she has got her appetite back. And then it says, And her face was no longer sad. This is a woman who has done business with God. She has resolved who she is as a person. She says, all right, Lord, I'm going to worship you regardless of the outcome. In a lot of ways, she has the same mindset as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before they get thrown into the furnace. Remember their response? They say, we know that our God has the ability to save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow. This is the same attitude that we see. You see, after we... Um, we come to the Lord and with, with a serious lamentation and we ask him for his help and, and we align ourselves to his perspective, it fills us with confidence because nothing can shake a child of God. If you know who you are, if God has presented himself over and over again, guess what? There comes confidence with that. And so her world changes and she continues to worship. Look at verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with, his, with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Big phrase, underline that. And the Lord remembered her. Verse 20, And it came about in due time, after Hannah had, had conceived, that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I've asked him of the Lord. Um, continue on in verse 21. Then the man Elkanah went up from all his household to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she had said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him, and that, that, that he may appear, appear before the Lord and stay there forever. 
Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best for you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Okay, a couple of things in these verses, quickly. The first thing, after pleading her case before the Lord, her first response is to worship. Look at verse 19. She gets up, she eats, she worships. After she has released these things to the Lord, she actually is free to enjoy her relationship with him again. And notice something in verse 19, that her conception comes as a result of God's remembrance. This isn't because uh, Eli blessed her. This wasn't because she did some special thing. It was because God remembered her. That's the exact same word that's used in her prayer, that God had compassion on her. His creation of her son wasn't just because he felt sorry for her. He gave her a son because he is a good father who sees his children. This is something that we, cannot, we, we can't let out of our mind is God does not watch us in our struggle, in our affliction, and scoff. He doesn't, he doesn't have compassion and say, oh, bless their hearts. He hurts for us in our struggle. That is why Romans tells us at the pinnacle of all, the, all of that in Romans chapter 8 where he says, because of all these things, and yet, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God or are called according to his purpose. God is not making lemonade out of our lemons. He is coordinating specific moments in our life so that we can learn who he is. This is, the, this is the, what's so profound about these stories is that God is going out of his way using the backdrop of infertility to teach us about his nature and his kindness and his goodness and his love for us. And not just about the specific situations. It's about, it's about making sure that we, had, that we learn how to enjoy him. So in verse 20, Samuel is born, and she named him, she names him Samuel, which is a com- combination of two Jewish words. One is Shema, which means heard, and El, which means God. So his name literally means God hears. I love that. Just like with the, others, with the sons of Jacob, we see Hannah naming her son as a testimony of, the, of her season of life. Um, so she stays home for the next few festivals until Samuel's weaned. A couple of things about this is that she knows that when she comes back to the feast, she's going to leave him there. Um, I don't think that she was trying to avoid this hard moment. I really don't. I don't think that she was selfishly trying to hoard him until it was time to turn him loose. What I see in Hannah, what I've seen in her so far in the story, is that she's a faithful woman. And you know what I can see her doing? I can see her saying, okay, buddy, you're not going this year, but one year you're going to go. One year, one year we're all going to go. You and me and dad, and we're going to go, and you're going to stay at the tabernacle. This is who you're going to be. You're special. God has made, some, made you on purpose, for a purpose. And she continues to, to, to uh, disciple him and show him who he is. Because imagine, leaving a toddler or leaving, leaving a weaned child in a stranger's arms, you don't think that child's going to freak out? Unless mama has been intentionally discipling this little boy. One day, one day we're going to go and, I'm gonna, and, and you're going to be on this great adventure and God's going to teach you all of these things. She was not just preparing him, but she was also preparing herself. Because Samuel, in every aspect, was her offering to the Lord. The choicest offering. This is what children are for us who have them, is that God doesn't give us children to possess and hold on to. He's not called us to raise good kids. He's called us to raise godly adults that are meant to be sent into the world. One of the things that's profound, we talked about uh, Psalm 127 uh, a few weeks ago. In the ancient world, arrows were not straight. They were made from saplings and from branches that were crooked. And so a good archer not only 
needed to know how to fire their weapon accurately, but they also needed to know how to compensate for the bend of the arrow. Every child is different, but every child is meant to be released. And it takes a skilled disciple to make skilled disciples. And to know how to release those children into the world is an important skill. Our children are not our possessions. They are lent to us on purpose for a kingdom reason. And so she is developing this boy. Now, her husband, Elkanah, must have seen her intentionally doing this because he has changed his attitude. Notice when she says, I'm going to stay back while you go to worship, he doesn't fight her and say, no, we're all going to church. He says, okay, you do what God's told you to do. He speaks truth into his wife, and he trusts her judgment. This is a big deal because it takes a big man to do that. He doesn't rebuke her. Instead, he encourages her. This is different than the Elkanah that we saw earlier. He sees her now. He sees her struggle. He sees what she's doing. He sees what God's doing in her life, and he loves it. So she takes him to the tabernacle. Look at verses 20, starting in verse 24. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, although the child was young. Uh, then, then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli and, said, oh my, and she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying, in the Lord, praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my, my petition which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now, a couple things here. The theme throughout this story, I don't know if you picked it up, is worship. That throughout the story, we can see a constant uh, thread of worship in the household of Elkanah and Hannah. This is something that speaks to their godliness and their priorities. A believer is called to worship God in all the seasons of their lives, not just the good parts. We don't because our lives are free from difficulty. We don't worship because we're doing great. We don't worship because we have all things together. We worship because it is the natural way that God has, has, has geared us to tune our, li- our life and our attention on Him and who He is. We sing how great thou art because I am not great. We sing amazing grace because we need amazing grace. One of the things about worship is that it changes us. It is not just an activity that we do. Church is not just something that we come to and we attend. This isn't a social club. This is, w- this is what God has commanded us to do because it's how he literally tunes us to his spirit. He uses prayer in the same way. Prayer is not me just asking God for things. Prayer is me asking God to give me his eyeballs so that I can see my situation as he sees it, so I can see not just the potential for growth, but his goodness. And so worship is a continual thing. So they go and they worship. This would have been a difficult thing for her, no doubt, and for Elkanah as well. But notice, they can't leave their boy at the tabernacle if they haven't gone through these last several years of growth. For some of us, when we're in that season of actually having to put up or shut up, when we tell God, we make deals with him and say, if you do this, I'll do this. Those years of preparation are instrumental. They're not just instrumental in the people around us, but they're instrumental in how we see the world. So in, in, in the course of all of this, they have continued to worship and cultivated this atmosphere of this is what, who is God, God has called us to be. And so they leave him behind and notice that it ends here. And he worshiped the Lord there, talking about Samuel, that his offering was worship. I, this, we're going to dig through the first 11 verses of, of chapter 2, and I know that we don't have a ton of time 
uh, to do this really justice this morning, but I can't, I can't escape doing this part here. So these first 11 verses, I'm just going to read them, and then we're going to talk about a couple of things about them. Verse 1 says, Then Hannah prayed and said, this is an example of a uh, lamentation prayer. This is, a, this is a, a prayer that's been written down on purpose. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is one. There's no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, and the feeble gird on strength. Uh, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full, were full hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry ceased to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the, of the earth are the Lord's, and he set, his, set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones. But the wicked ones are silenced in darkness, for not, my, for not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them will thunder in the heavens. He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will, and he will give strength to his king, and will exalt the horn of his anointed. There's a lot in these verses that we don't have time to go through this morning, but um, the first thing that I want you to know is that the most significant thing about Hannah is her relationship with God. The first thing that comes out of her mouth is she says that she rejoices in the Lord and not in the birth of her son. Have you noticed that? She doesn't rejoice in what God has provided for her. She rejoices in Him specifically. She has learned some lessons over the years. She says that her horn is exalted. This is a phrase that implies that authority and power her mouth speaks boldly against her enemies. This means that her confidence does not rely on her motherhood or on her, her husband, but on the salvation of the Lord. This is a woman who has done business with God. Verse 2 says that she understands now that God has seen her all along, that he is worthy to be praised because there's no one like him. He's a solid foundation. Remember Psalm 127 that Solomon will write many years later where he says, that um, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The foundation of a family is found in the salvation of the Lord. In verse 3, she says that um, she can see that... that um, I'm sorry, let me back up. Verse 3, she says, Boast no, vo- no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed. She acknowledges God's authority. Think about this. To those who don't have a relationship with God. I heard, uh, I read recently that, uh, that we, we human beings in our sinful state, we're like, we're like people in a penitentiary. We're like inmates that are trapped by our own nature. We're trapped by our sin. Think about how ridiculous this sounds. An inmate in a penitentiary bragging about their freedom and their independence. This is an example of what she's talking about here. 
You arrogantly talk about how independent you are, and yet God is the one who weighs all things in the balance. Um, In verses 4 through 10, she goes through a series of contrasts here. She starts off in verse 4 by saying, The perceived might of the worldly is nothing compared to the strength of the Lord. In verse 5, she says, The worldly uh, who seem to be satisfied with material things have no security and always long for more, but the children of God are satisfied. She uses this, this, uh, this uh, language where she says, the barren, uh, meaning the godly woman, has many children, but the mother with many sons pines away. The idea is that in the world's terms, a woman is a mother when she has biological children. But in God's terms, a woman is a mother when she is creating disciples. If we produce biological children and we don't teach them about Jesus, and we don't disciple them, we are producing stillborn children spiritually so she so she says the one who has all these children pines away but the one who doesn't who's barren she has a multitude of blessings man again we point back to this idea that that it's not about raising biological children but about creating disciples um in verse six she says that the lord determines eternity over every person in verse seven she says the lord determines true wealth and poverty verse eight she says the lord controls influence and the and has authority over all things referring to the foundations of the earth. And in verse 9, she says, the Lord protects the feet of his children from being tripped up by wickedness. Prevailing doesn't come from hard work. It comes from humility and submission to God. If we want to walk in, in confidence, in security, and understanding, and, and be able to, to face all of these stresses and challenges of life, whether they are as severe as infertility, or whether they seem to be as small as a, as a bill that needs to be paid, we need to understand that our God is a God who sees all of us. And we have to walk in humility. In verse 10, she talks about those who contend with the Lord, that they're going to be shattered. Her language here, she, it speaks to, of the, the full weight of God's authority. And in, the, in these verses, she speaks um, about the king who's going to be anointed and exalted over all, who's going to judge the ends of the earth. She's talking about Jesus. She says, this God, this God who has authority over all things, is not just a casual observer. He is a God who will walk with us. He is a king. Some other things that uh, I want to point out about Hannah's life that you can read more about later. At the end of chapter 2, Hannah would come to see her son every year and she'd bring him new clothes as he grew. I have no doubt that as time went on and she spent time making those garments that she was thinking about her boy serving in the tabernacle, wanting to hear his stories about what he had learned and what God has shown him. My mother um, has picked up a, a tradition from her mother, which is to make quilts for all of the children. My grandmother Lois used to make a, uh, a quilt for all of the grandchildren. I have, I have one in, in our, at our house, and my mom has started to make some for our children. And one of the practices that she does is as she, as she works on that quilt, she prays for that child. So that later on when, they are, when we're sleeping under those covers, metaphorically, we would be covered in her prayers. I wonder if Hannah, as she was sewing these garments together, if she was thinking about her boy, you think this is going to be big enough? How much do you think he's grown this year? Oh, I wonder what he's learned. I wonder what God has shown him. Oh man, you remember that last year when we, when we went and he told us about that time that God spoke to him directly? Man, 
She makes him clothes and she brings him to her, brings brings them to him every year. God also gives her more children. In verse 21 of chapter 2, it says that God gave her sons and daughters after Samuel. In 1 Samuel 4 and 6, you'll see a story where uh, the people of Israel continue to grow callous against God and they think that, that uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant is a lucky charm. And so they take it out in a battle and they lose it in battle to the Philistines. And God brings the weight of his judgment on the Philistines and he causes plagues to break out. And their pagan gods to be um, shown foolish. And at the end of, of chapter 7, it's interesting because you know, you would think oh, Hannah turns Samuel over and she's never going to see him again. But we, don't, we know that's not true. This mama turns over her son in the sacrifice in obedience to God. And yet, in verse, uh, verse 17 of, of 1 Samuel chapter 7, we find out where he actually lives as an adult. It says, Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there. And there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Samuel moves home after becoming an adult. The last judge of Israel, the most powerful man of his generation, that God, after, after his preparation at the tabernacle, settles him down the road from his parents' homestead. Even in that moment, those little things, God shows himself to be faithful. So Hannah got the chance to see her little children. Her, she got to see Samuel's little children grow. He continued to have a bond with his parents and his siblings. God was gracious to Hannah's heart by bringing her son home. And her testimony and life of faith produced the last great judge in the nation of Israel. So here's my encouragement to you about Hannah and Elkanah. It is not just about enduring the struggle that makes us who we are. We don't just wait for it to be over. God has specifically given us the gift of the testimony of our story. And we have a responsibility in the process of it to worship, to be thankful, and to legitimately pour our heart out before God because He sees us. It is not just about achieving a a worldly metric of success. It is about being a specific person, a child of God who walks in confidence. And if you lack confidence, I would challenge you to lament to the Lord so that He can change your heart and you can see the truth of who He is. And the devil is going to tell you a lie. He's going to tell you this. He's going to say, God can't fill that hole that's in your heart. And that is not true. That is not true. Because the reality for Hannah is that whether or not God gave her a son, she had legitimately poured her heart out to God. And she had made things right with him and she had settled who he was in her life. That is the real win of this story. It's not Samuel being born. It's Hannah pouring her heart out to the Lord and learning to love him even more. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. Come on.
mighty war.